the HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And it's the last episode of season two, Summer of Sharks. And in quite an apt move, the last episode will feature a movie called The Last Shark. All good things must come to an end. It is the final Summer of Sharks movie for 2022, but we've got a doozy for the last one. And we also have a doozy of a guest accompanying us this week. It is the wonderful Kate Orton. Hello, Kate. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back again for the grand finale. (laughs) So The Last Shark, an 81 movie directed by Enzo G. Castellari. I've been told that tragically we do not have a synopsis from the king of the synopsis, Nick Reganis. So we're just going to have to settle for a secondary one this week. We are indeed. It's such a shame that we don't have Nick for the final uh, episode of Summer of Sharks. So this synopsis is taken from IMDb and it's written by Bly379. An enormous and angry 35-foot great white shark takes revenge on humans when they build a beach just for swimmers by a coastal town. After several shark attacks and the mayor does nothing to stop it, James Franciscus and Vic Morrow sail in pursuit to stop it. Now, this plot might sound a little bit familiar to a lot of you, and it takes us all the way back to our first ever Summer of Sharks episode that we ever did, which is, of course, Jaws. And this film has a very interesting history because Universal Pictures took out a lawsuit against it because this film was literally a Jaws knockoff. From what I've read, that it came out, but then it got into legal trouble and then it was stopped from being released any further and then vanished? Yeah, so according to Wikipedia, which is the font of all knowledge, of course, the film did well at the box office, grossing over $18 million in its first month in the United States. However, its North American release was later blocked after the filmmakers were accused of plagiarising Jaws. Universal Pictures attempted to block the distribution by Film Ventures before its US premiere on the 5th of March 1982. The request was denied in the US District Court. However, about a month into release, federal judge David B. Kenyon ruled that the film was too similar to Jaws and the last shot was subsequently pulled from theatres. Hmm. So what do you think, Kate? Do you think it's a little bit similar to Jaws? I mean, it's clearly so similar to Jaws that in Spain, for its Spanish release, Jaws 1 and 2, obviously, were already out. It was titled Jaws 3, but in Spanish. Um, <laughs> so Shark 3, whatever it was called. So 
it's so similar that it was in fact marketed internationally as a sequel (laughs) despite not being the same property at all if you like jaws and i imagine that most people listening to this podcast will it's a great time to be had because it's kind of jaws she wrote it feels very that kind of Martha's Vineyard, Rhode Island. You expect Angela Lansbury to just pop up every now and again in a snazzy cardigan. It's got a really, a really sort of sweet American TV crime drama kind of atmosphere, but with it, some absolutely spectacular special effects, which I'm sure we'll get into <laughs> later. But in terms of narrative, it's a paint-by-numbers remake, isn't it? Up until mm, probably the last third, where they they throw in some, I mean, I wouldn't say they're original moves in terms of the narrative, but it takes it away from from the original text slightly. But, yeah, it's budget Jaws. That's correct. It is budget Jaws. So you get budget Jaws characters as well. I mean, shot in Malta. Malta does a decent job of standing in for... um, American seaside place you can see the joins in some places because you think well that doesn't really look like it but they've done a decent enough job there where they haven't really done a decent enough job is the cookie cutter character templates which are just lifted straight from Jaws including Budget Quint now I love Vic Morrow I think he's a great actor God rest his soul he was fantastic (laughs) And he was in other Enzo G. Castellari flicks. And he always does a sterling job. But here, where is he coming from in terms of character and the accent? I mean, the accent. What What's going on with the accent? I mean, he's just all over the map. At the start, I thought, oh, he may be Scottish. Then I thought, oh, he may be Irish. Maybe he's somewhere else. But he'll chew the scenery up and say things like, look at this and tell me this wasn't a grenade and things like that (laughs) and it's hilarious every time Vic Morrow is on screen I was well up for it because I just thought oh god give him some more dialogue because he's absolutely unintelligible about 33% of the time and I know that they post dub all of these movies so the decision was I mean I know that they were trying to do something along the lines of Quint but when you're in the dubbing studio when somebody's doing that voice, whether it was Vic Morrow or another voice actor, didn't somebody at some point in the dubbing studio go, oh, come on, no, this isn't going to work? Poor Vic Morrow. He works so hard. Every second he's on screen, he is giving it his all. And it's an interesting character choice with, with the kind of knockoff Quint that, you know, Quint has that coldness to him. He is the man who knows how to get the job done and he has no time for messing around. Whereas Vic Morrow's character is more sympathetic to his kind of peers on screen, kind of a kinder soul. He's working in partnership. He's not that kind of difficult guy to get on with. But they obviously felt that beyond just the wardrobe, they needed something else that spoke to the original Quint character. So I went, right, do all the accents at once, (laughs) Vic. I mean, when you see him at the first, he's kind of, when he's hanging out on the boat with his can of beer, you just expect that his first line of dialogue is going to be, ha ha. <laughs> see, that would just have added to it even more. I think, yeah, they missed a trick there. 
but he's he is the standout star of, of this film he's he carries a lot of it the characters are not particularly inspired they're doing their best these guys with the material that they've got my big question is why make this film <laughs> is this you know like <laughs> i mean isn't that what we always ask why why did you bother we've had jaws we've had jaws too at this point is it capitalizing on a format that clearly is financially viable but why just make the same film again and i don't know if you've got any kind of context to the production or how this came about but people are always just going to go and watch jaws aren't they yeah you know if if you've got the choice of the two why go down this road yeah. I literally said to Darren, I would rather be watching Jaws right now. <laughs> it, it, it's true, though. I mean, I think there was just so many low-budget knockoffs of big movies back in that era anyway. I don't know a great deal about the context of the production, but on the surface, it just d- does suggest that they were just trying to capitalise on a familiar format, get bums on seats in the cinemas to see something that they're, as I say, familiar with. But Again, it's like you're not going to have that shock value that you would have had with when watching Jaws for the first time with this because you kind of know what to expect because it's so similar. One thing I will give it, though, was it didn't open with a shark POV shot like most of these movies do. We've had quite a run of it in this uh, series of Summer of Sharks. So this film actually opens with uh, somebody surfing, which is a bit different, so I'll give it that. Yeah. Uh, yes. Let's let's take a second to talk about the extended sexy windsurfing opening <laughs> sequence. <laughs> I just like I I get that you need something to put your opening credits over, but this guy just he just keeps finding new ways of kind of posing on a windsurf board, and at one point he hooks himself through the central bar and sort of bends over slightly backwards in a very kind of look at my groin kind of way. (laughs) (laughs) And as I mentioned to you guys, I only watched this film this morning in preparation and slightly worse for wear. So (laughs) I was taking all of this on board through a lens of (laughs) last night's revelries. And I have to say, if you're going to watch The Last Shark, I highly advise doing it in a slightly adult state because it really only adds to the (laughs) <laughs> mystification that you all feel <laughs> as you watch a man in tiny shorts bend backwards on a windsurf board, dip his butt into the water, then a toe. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Come on, guys. I mean, poor old Mikey doesn't last very long. I mean, he pauses for the first three minutes of the credits and then the shark gets him. And he's supposed to be this great windsurfing champ and he's going to win the regatta and all this sort of stuff. But he's gone five minutes in. Poor old Mikey. So the governor or the the wannabe governor's son is kind of the favourite to do the windsurfing honours in the regatta. But even the regatta, I mean, it's kind of building up to a, a specific event, very much like Jaws. Yeah. But it's this big nautical event and there's a windsurfing race in the regatta. And surprise, surprise, the shark gate crashes it and there's panic and there's people trying to get to shore. But considering the amount of mayhem the shark could have caused, because there's probably about 30 or 40 windsurfers out there, considering it's got a fairly nicely set up buffet for it, it's absolutely crap 
at killing people. I mean, I think it doesn't kill any of the windsurfers. It kills the one of the governor's advisors who goes out in a boat. So it's, it manages to miss all the windsurfers, which were, were just sitting there. And then this guy who kind of paddles out and sort of gets the boat to try and save a few of them, then gets knocked out of the boat and then he he dies but yeah the, the shark is is fairly ineffectual for quite a lot of the movie and very much like shark attack 3 it seems to get people through their own incompetence they fall off boats or they kind of <laughs> wander into its path or fall into its gob basically in, in terms of the, sort of the helicopter thing later but uh, it's it's a weird movie because it's kind of setting up the shark as this really lethal threat and then it manages to not chew its way through most of the cast because the, most of the people who think well oh, they're dead most of them make it to the end as well so it's a fairly rubbish shark in terms of body count shall we just discuss I... the appearance of the shark <laughs> <laughs> oh so this is the kind of animatronic shark you'd probably find on a cheaply done Jaws knockoff ride at a theme park that isn't Universal or Disney. It's the sort of <laughs> a shark that you can, if you go down to your um, local kind of garden centre, you know, you can buy those uh, sort of great big, what they made out of, plaster of Paris yeah. kind of things to put in your garden. Yeah. And I've seen these before. You can get these great big shark spaces. It's essentially one of those. <laughs> it's a giant plaster of Paris shark head that they, at various points in the film, just thrust up from underwater, and its mouth is in one position and one position only, and doesn't move. And it, it doesn't look awful. It's no. just completely static. Yeah. So... <laughs> it does not look real at all. <laughs> I, I loved the effects in this film. And, Darren, you're talking about the windsurfing in the regatta, which brings us to the greatest point in this film in my opinion which is the chap in the boat getting knocked out and eaten <laughs> when we say he's knocked out of the boat <laughs> i mean guys if you've not seen this film before listening to the podcast please just pause us now go away it's about 37 minutes in and i remember this because as soon as the theme is over i immediately skip back and played it again <laughs> about 37 minutes in the shark has I'm still not sure why or how it's got a buoy attached to it, which is how it's knocked loads of windsurfers down. So you can see where it is in the water. Very helpful if you just get a swimmer and get them to hold on to the end of a bit of string. So you can see where it is. And then all of these windsurfers are falling in and there's panic and the music is mounting and they're all running to the boat or running out of the water. And suddenly we do get that almost point of view shot and it's of the buoy travelling towards the boat at high speeds. You know this guy's in for it. And suddenly, <laughs> part two, instead of the guy standing in the boat, it's a mannequin. <laughs> <laughs> and the boat is thrust 15 foot into the air. The mannequin completely rigidly pinwheels out of it. <laughs> oh, I can't. I can't, honestly. Please just go and watch this one scene. If, if you don't watch the whole film, just watch this one scene over and over again if necessary and then suddenly we cut to real actor in the water with that close-up face and he's dragged under 
it's spectacular. And what I love is that clearly the filmmakers knew how ridiculous this looked. They found a way of showing it again later on in the film because there's a news crew who've been filming the regatta and you get to see it again as they're watching their playback of their footage. <laughs> and then we get the big polystyrene head comes out of the sea. I'd love to know how they managed to get that footage as well because it's very close up and it's very good and it's very sharp. This cameraman must have been right in the centre of the action. And the the TV guy who's trying to get all of this spectacular footage is a guy called Timothy Brent. And he was an Enzo G. Castellari regular. Timothy Brent is his um, American stage name. He's a guy called Giancarlo Pretti. He appeared in things like Bronx Warriors and uh, New Barbarians and lots of and other Enzo G. Castellari stuff because he tended to cast a lot of the same actors. The guy who is the mannequin who gets blasted out of the boat and then his dummy unconvincingly falls in the water, that's a guy called Thomas Moore, but he's actually called Ennio Girolami. He's a brother of the director. The daughter of James Franciscus's character, uh, who is called Jenny, she is Enzo G. Castellari's daughter. She was in quite a lot of his stuff. So the Castellari stuff tends to be a bit of a family affair. And all these people give decent performances. I think Thomas Moore gets the shit end of the rope every single time because he's got a terrible death in this. He's got an unconvincing dummy. In the New Barbarians, the dummy's more convincing, but he gets basically blown to pieces by a ray gun that looks like it's come out of a cornflakes packet. So if you haven't seen The New Barbarians, it's a great action movie. It's a really, really well put together Mad Max ripoff with some absolutely ludicrous violence in it. And that is a recommendation. But the Castellari brand, you kind of know what you're getting. This isn't quite as action packed as this stuff usually is. It's kind of hemmed in a little bit because of the Jaws references and he has to deliver something specific it's when you get him to wander off on flights of fancy that he's a better filmmaker but here as we've gone back to the italians are very good at jumping on the prevailing want of the time for people so cannibal movies became a big thing the, the italians did a load of cannibal movies following mad max the italians did a load of mad max ripoff and here they obviously thought well the jaws movies are still quite popular let's do a jaws ripoff now this is a bigger ripoff than any of the Mad Max stuff, because at least the Mad Max things have got their own stamp and they're set in different periods and they've got different plots. But this is kind of a template of Jaws just stuck over this and then it's like, we'll put some Italian actors in and we need to get a couple of Americans in to make it a bit more saleable over there. And then we're going to give Vic Morrow the most ridiculous accent in the entire world. Actually, just while we're on that topic, was this film, is it in English? I actually can't figure this out. Because a lot of the post-dub, they actually seem to be speaking another language, the, the words that are in the dub and not what's coming out of their mouth. There's a, a bit with the um, guy who's the candidate for becoming the governor, who's, yep. you know, he's the, the mayor figure from Jaws. There's a close-up of him, and the, the words that we hear is no, but what he's saying is nada. So... Yeah. Is it in Italian and then dubbed into English? Is it half and half? Do you know? What they tend to do with these Italian movies, and it happened a lot on some of the Jello movies as well, is that they will shoot the film without sound and they will give the actors the dialogue in their own native language and then in post everything will be dubbed back into whichever market they are specifically targeting the film for. So if it's the English dub, then they'll get a lot of American actors in. So they'll, and they'll normally use some of the same voice actors as well. 
depending on what they need to do. But if it's for the the French market, they'll dub it into French, Spanish, Spanish. There's like so so they will do that. So so generally, what Italians will do is is shoot it completely without sound and then fix the dub to whichever country they want to release it. Which I think actually in it really adds to the sense of unreality in this that you you can't quite keep track of because it's not a straight Italian dub or a straight English dub or whatever. You've got actors who seem to be speaking different languages from each other. Bits where the mouths are moving once the dialogue stops playing on screen. You know, it really adds to the entertainment value, I think. It's part of the charm of this film. And I did suspect it would be something like that, but it's about the kind of the flexibility of the end product and being able to kind of market it to different international crowds. But it just means it's not perfect for any given audience. Yeah, so exactly. Regardless of whether you're Italian, English, Venezuelan, it's going <laughs> to be slightly distorted and weird. Yeah. Which is great. <laughs> and if you're a Jello fan, you kind of get used to that and you don't mind it. But I think if you come into this cold in terms of this type of movie, it might put you off a little bit because of the reasons that you said that the the actors' lips don't match what's on the dialogue and on, on sound but i'm with you kate i think it adds to the charm and things like especially with jello movies because jello movies are so ridiculous anyway that you need that extra level of um, heightened reality and it also means that some of the dialogue they've kind of tailored it for certain markets but some of the dialogue is absolutely priceless the exchange between the governor and james franciscus's wife he says something like gloria you look lovely today and then she goes don't i always <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that's such a sleazy line yeah and no, i'm with you guys on the whole dubbing being like quite a charming aspect of the film like it doesn't bother me again because i've seen quite a few jallo movies and uh, movies of this type like in bad film clubs over the years so yeah definitely adds to the charm but i agree with darren that if someone came into this just looking for a movie that was similar to jaws but not jaws they might have a hard time with it absolutely yeah and this is you know, this is bad Jaws. This is it's a perfect bad film club movie because you're you're entertained, don't get us wrong. It's a very enjoyable film to watch. It's just not a good film. <laughs> yes, that's a very good point. If you enjoy movies that are a bit creaky and there's terrible dialogue and some very dodgy effects, then you'll be in heaven. If you're looking for something that's on the level of the Jaws movies, even on the level of something like Jaws 3 in terms of technical aspects, you're probably going to get slightly frustrated with this. But it does take a bit of a dark turn, this, because it's been fairly silly for about an hour, and then there's a fairly dark point at it in which um, the daughter, Jenny, has her leg bitten off, and then there's a scene where James Franciscus goes to see her in the hospital, and it kind of seems at odds with the rest of the movie. It takes a really dark turn for about five minutes and then it kind of informs what they do in the final act but from it just being a kind of a silly jaws ripoff you get this happening about an hour in and it really threw me i think it's quite chilling it's worse for the fact that you don't actually see her get a leg bitten off you kind of know what's happened but they don't show you it you know you just show her going to the hospital and then she's on the stretcher and they're pushing her through the corridors and stuff and that actually is quite effective. In a really, really dumb shark movie, they've put something in that I thought, that's working on another level now. I'm I'm not sure what I feel about it, but 
they've done a pretty good job with the drama in that kind of five minute section and then it goes back to being daft again yeah that scene where they're pushing her through into the hospital through the corridors what was up with the sound editing there there's absolutely no non-diegetic sound yeah so you go from the the attack scene where there's a lot of music to then nothing it was almost like there was no audio at all and then you know you can hear a door open and close and just footsteps and it it felt totally very odd like it felt like they had missed that in the edit it didn't feel like a stylistic choice it it felt unfinished to me it really stood out as a weird bit of sound editing and actually the editing overall of this film is abysmal (laughs) um (laughs) it chops and changes without thought or consequence from person to person from bit of action to bit of action things that are started and not finished (laughs) yeah in a way that yeah the the editing really affects the flow of the film overall Uh, but you know like with everything else we've said if you can kind of lean into it it's part of the charm of it that it's so poorly done but actually with better editing you would have had a better finished product i think yes yeah you definitely would have done and I think the weird thing about you, you're right about that scene with the stretcher being pushed through the hospital and the fact that there's no sound. And I think it probably is that they may have just thought, you know what, film's done. We don't need to do anything in this sequence. I mean, a lot of these movies are quite haphazardly slung together anyway. But weirdly, because there's, there's a lack of noise on that, that just makes it all the more chilling because it feels like you've been dropped into this nightmare. So it's like you get a really, really loud scene with everything going on. And the bit where she's injured and they're pushing her through the hospital is kind of almost silent and that's just really weird and i think it works because not because of the skill of the filmmakers or the editors here i think it works because somebody has obviously not decided to put a lot of sound effects in the background and it just happens to work in terms of this really horrible sequence it leans back into the ridiculousness at the end and obviously you know you're going to get budget quint and james franciscus going out to do what men have got to do and take the shark on there's quite an interesting bit where where they are actually pursuing the shark and it's smart enough to cause a kind of a rock fall. It's pushing rocks into this gap of this cave to try and trap them in there. That's something that doesn't happen in Jaws. There's some originality occasionally. Mostly it is just like, let's just do Jaws again. We've spoken before about animals with agendas. Yes. This is a shark with a clear agenda. Yeah. <laughs> like he's got a plan. He's got blueprints. He knows what he's doing. Even uses tools at some points, which is all yes. very clever for what is essentially a small polystyrene. Yeah. Can, can we talk about the, the rubber shark? We for a can, second? because some of the Italian movies, I mean, Antonio Margariti did this quite a lot, Castellari not so much, but they would use miniatures in sequences. So Margariti did miniatures in kind of in macro because he would do things like planes would crash in miniature and there'd even be car chasers in miniature which is kind of ridiculous the miniature stuff in this it's really sweet but it's just not convincing in the slightest it is like someone with children's bath toys <laughs> just <laughs> they've got themselves a gopro <laughs> thrown some rocks in the bottom of the tub <laughs> and they've got a duplo helicopter <laughs> And a small rubber shark, and they're just banging them together at the bottom of the bathtub. <laughs> it's, the rubber shark is excellent because it looks absolutely nothing like the giant plaster of Paris shark head that they keep throwing out of the water for the above water shots. It's 
not representative of the species of shark. It doesn't, <laughs> it's not well rendered. <laughs> it is, it, it, I'm sure it is just a children's bathtub toy. And any time they need to show the whole shark, which actually is quite frequently, you mm. know, the, the scene you were talking about, Darren, where, where it causes the underwater kind of rock cave in to trap the two divers in the cave, which they then blow up with dynamite. It, like, there's quite a lot of effects in this film. But then again, they show it chewing through the net, but that's intercut with some cage diving shots. So you can quite clearly see that the, the camera is within a, a kind of a cage diving setup, and they've got a real great white kind of chewing on the outside. Mm. So they cut <laughs> from real great white to <laughs> bath toy. <laughs> Sorry. Really, guys, you need to watch this film. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is <just> ridiculous. <laughs> we had a lot of laughs watching it this morning. It really helped the hangover. <laughs> so they were going to make a sequel to this movie, but the reason they had to decide against it was because the mechanical shark was damaged after shooting, therefore it could not be reused for the sequel. So they didn't bother trying to get another shark in. That was it. My, that was the reason, was it? Yeah. My question would be, were there any actual moving parts to break in that shark? I mean, you only see kind of the top of the head, so they could have stuck somebody underneath it and just get had them push it up yeah. and down out of the water for the sequel. Maybe it got water damaged or something. <laughs> yeah, it just didn't, just didn't serve its purpose anymore. <laughs> Lumps of plaster falling off it. <laughs> Yeah, there was, there was probably a reason. But I, I don't really think we needed a sequel to this. I think it's fine as a standalone movie. I'm glad that filmmakers spared us from that. <laughs> I wonder if they would have done a rip-off of Jaws 2 for the sequel. Probably. I mean, I mean it's kind of got elements of Jaws 2 in there, but not, not mm. too many of them. So I guess for a sequel, maybe they thought, maybe we can do Jaws 2, but we'll never know because of the damage, whatever they version of Bruce was but yeah so we, we will never see it's like again probably which is kind of a shame on one hand but you're right I don't think the world needed another follow-up to this one kind I don't know of... if the world really needed this one Darren probably not either <laughs> that's, that's true yeah I mean I I mean I like this sort of rubbish but I think even my patience was tested at some points in this because it does drag a little bit it's kind of treading water towards the end before the big showdown and even the big showdown isn't that great when the two divers take it on the bit i did like though was the people waiting on the end of the pier waiting for it to come out because they're trying to tempt it in with a massive side of ribs or whatever it is and it's on the bottom of the pier but you've got these idiots standing on the pier underneath where it is it's like why would oh, you not special tear away dock yeah and there's tear away dock so it's like they stood on the end of the dock and it's like i would be standing way further back if i were you and of course the shark pulls the dock off and it's got some of the main characters on there and there's a bit of gore some guy gets bitten in half which is quite nasty on one level but also it kind of looks fairly fake but i think that's probably why it gets its 15 certificate because there's some of the gore is reasonably unpleasant but it's also very unconvincing i mean there's a showdown it's okay but the very end of the showdown is pretty ridiculous and you kind of know what's going to happen without giving too much away it's, it's very jaws quint-esque in some mm. way 
They end third of the film. We jump from set piece to set piece to set piece. Yeah. Various groups of characters try to take the shark down and fail. You've already mentioned about the girl having her leg bitten off. So there's that group who are out in the water at the same time as there's our budget Quint and his chum are out there diving. And then the tearaway dock scene is, is the, the film crew are trying to get really close up footage of this great big shark because that will help their careers. But they bring in a mysterious bloke <laughs> who just appears out of nowhere. This character seems to serve no purpose at all. But the setup is he's filmed a bit, you know, like a Clint Eastwood movie. He appears on screen. We just see him from the back. And his jacket has, I think it's meant to be an eagle or something like that, yeah. but made out of real feathers, which implies he's a hunter of some kind. And yes. we just see the back of his head. And it's that, that very kind of like, this guy has arrived. and He's going to save the day. And he's got some special gun, which he promptly loses. And they get he gets eaten. So, yeah. Yeah, for this for this amazing hunter that I mean they haven't built him up, but he suddenly shows up and it's like right, I'll take care of it. He is, and I I apologise for using this phrase, but he is absolutely fucking shit at his job. Literally one job. Yeah, he had one job to do. He lost his rifle and then he got eaten. And clearly they've brought him in at great expense because we they need to get rid of this shark. And the first thing he does is lose the only chance he's got of killing it. And then the second thing he does is die. Now, surely they would have looked into his background because they thought, hang on a minute, what is he actually... Apart from the jacket, I mean, he looks the part in the jacket, but what actually is is general MO as a hunter. Let's see what he's hunted in the past. Now, I think if they'd have gone back and looked through his records... He'd have just have got that jacket off somebody and he'd have been hunting nothing. He just happens to be handed this rifle as a present from somebody. And he just goes on tourist safaris with people and doesn't shoot anything. And if they'd have found that out about him, they'd have said, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't have hired him at all. But also, if you're hiring a guy to come and kill a shark, if he's got a bird on the back of his jacket, you not that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Sorry, that's a good point, no. actually. If, if there's a shark, yeah. what kind of bird is that? No, shark, under the water. Oh, <laughs> You want the other day, the one with the shark on his jacket. <laughs> It'd be nice to know that there's a there's a group of hunters that have all got jackets with the with the particular kind of creature that they hunt. There's a bloke with a tiger on his jacket. And there's a bloke with a rhino. The bloke with the mouse on the back of his jacket. Well, we don't get much work in for him because the council normally does that sort of thing. There's also another brilliant set piece in this final third with. A helicopter, as I mentioned before about the, <laughs> the toys in the bus. Realised it didn't kind of give any further explanation to that. One of the groups of people who goes out to try to kill the shark is this candidate for governor, who again is a more sympathetic version of the mayor character from Jaws, and he's rich, so he has his own helicopter, and we've already seen it in some earlier scenes. And he goes out, just him and the pilot, and promptly falls out of the helicopter because again the shark has the agenda so when they dangle some bait on a line i don't know what they were aiming to achieve there did they think they were going to pull the shark out of the water i don't know but anyway the shark ends up dragging the helicopter down but not before the governor character falls out the helicopter gets bitten in half <laughs> in quite dramatic fashion and then the helicopter ends up underwater hence rubber shark helicopter bottom of the bathtub that's a particularly fun sequence. 
it's just one scene after another with these kind of setups of people trying and failing in spectacular fashion to take out this smart shark. And then, yeah, it builds up to the final showdown. But by the time you get there, because there's been so many other scenes that could have been final showdowns, it kind of loses its punch a bit, I thought. Yeah, it's a fairly ignominious demise for the shark. It just happens to be that somebody happens to have an explosive device on their person, and when the shark eats it, they detonate the device. Sorry, I'm just remembering the the actual actual shot of the shark's demise. Oh, yes. Which is done with miniatures. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. Good times were had. Good times were had. And then it just sort of ends. That's it. It kind of ends very abruptly. The credits just pop up, and then... Yeah, we're done. There's no kind of reflection at the end. It's like it's it's done, got where it needed to go. Sharks are dead, end movie. Yeah, they just get into a car, and even as they're getting into the car, they don't even allow them to drive off into the sunset before the credits are going. It's like, no, no, we need to get that out of the way now. Get the credits going. It's like, no, you, you can drive off while the credits are rolling. We're on the time clock here. And it does. Yeah, it's time for D-Rig, right. Everyone, <laughs> <laughs> and it comes in at about 87 minutes so it's not a massive waste of your time I have to say even if you're kind of watching it and thinking what the hell am I watching it doesn't take up too much of your time it does manage to stick to that rule that it's going to be under 90 minutes all this kind of horror stroke sort of action movies probably should run about 90 minutes and this one does but it's one of those great examples of Italian cinema just picking something up that was popular elsewhere and then just running with it in their own particular style. And some of it works and an awful lot of it doesn't. Oh, one thing I am going to mention is during the regatta, there's a fair and then there appears to be a guitarist in a box. Oh my God! What the the hell's going on with the guitarist in the box? They open this window and then this guy starts playing this song. But he only starts playing this song when you open this kind of doorway into his almost like some cupboard that they put him in. And it's never explained. It just kind of segues into something else with the regatta. And this song keeps playing, but it's just like, what? What's that for? If you're going to put a song in, just put a song in. You don't need to have some bloke introduced in this such a sort of weird fashion and then him start playing the music and then it goes into something else. It was like... But Darren, and... have you never been to Italy? Italian beaches are covered in, in men with various instruments in boxes. <laughs> <laughs> it was been... almost as it was like it meant to be an animatronic, you know, one of those things where you put like a coin in the slot and then it starts singing or like yeah. these creepy animatronics. It reminded me of that, but obviously with like a real life human, you'd have a bit of a surprise opening that. Absolutely. If it, if it was me, and I was like, oh, I wonder what's behind this door. And on this door, there's this guy starts playing a guitar, but like, kill it with fire! <laughs> and that's how the three tenors got started. <laughs> three three different boxes. And it's like, keep opening different things. It's like, right, okay, Carreras needs to be on now. Open his, open his door. <laughs> yes, it's <in. laughs> so, oh. round up, we're going to talk a bit about the film's legacy, or, well, its controversy, I guess. So it was released under the title Great White in the United States and as Shark in the UK. And it also enjoyed a good response in Italy, where it became the 72nd highest grossing film of the 1980 to 1981 season. I'd like to know what grossed more than it. That'd be quite an interesting <laughs> list of movies. 
You can never tell the Italian film market. I mean, it's some very strange stuff gets to number one there. And God love them. I, I, it's a beautiful country and I love the Italians and I love their taste for movies. And then it was finally released on DVD only in 2013 by Retrovision Entertainment. And it was making it the film's first ever official home release in the United States. And it also contains a documentary titled Great White, The Legacy, 30 Years Later. I'd actually be interested to see that documentary. Yeah, same here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I reckon that'd be a good one. The background of the making of the movie has to be more interesting than what was on screen because some of the decisions that they took with this movie, you just think, why? I mean, honestly, why? And then this is the fact that interested me the most. It says that the scenes from Great White were incorporated into the 1995 Italian shark movie Cruel Jaws, which also utilised footage from Jaws. The movie Deep Blood also used a lot of footage from this movie, including the oddly shaped balloon shark model. So that's quite interesting how this footage from this film has been repurposed into something else. And we were discussing Cruel Jaws quite recently, weren't we, Darren? And yeah. we were saying apparently it's very difficult to find and get hold of. I mean, I saw it uh, at Aura Convention and it was about 40 quid for the DVD. And I thought, yeah. you know, am I going to spend 40 quid on a DVD of Cruel Jaws? <laughs> on another day, I might have done, but I'd already bought some other stuff. And I thought, you know what? No, probably not this time. I'll probably come to regret it. I have seen bits of Cruel Jaws because it was posted on YouTube, I think, at one point. It's another example of the Italians cannibalising bits of movies to use in bits of other movies very on the nose that cannibal movies for instance there's a lot of footage that was in specific cannibal movies that was then reused for other cannibal movies later down the line so the italian film industry certainly the exploitation film industry in italy has got a history of using bits of footage from other sources to either pad out the running time or to provide effects where they don't have the budget so it's a really interesting film industry the italian one it's more kind of heath robinson than the u.s one the u.s one seems to be very slick and there's like financing and there's you know big premieres and stuff the italians are not into any of that it's like let's just get it done and we can get it done in this way and i find that a more interesting way of making movies so i think anything to do with that period of filmmaking is fascinating to me i think it's a great era when they put out some absolutely ludicrous exploitation stuff which is pretty good in the main yeah the last sharks it's not a great example of cinema but there's plenty of enjoyment that you can get from it because some of it is just so mystifyingly bad because you just think somebody has actually gone into an editing room and looked at it and thought yeah that's all right whereas everybody else is like what what am i watching what's going on yeah and i think that this film is intriguing to people because of its connection with Jaws and the Universal lawsuit. I think if that hadn't happened, it might not have um, come into the public conscious as much as it has. So, but again, it's quite still quite lesser known. Yeah. So, are we going to do the scores? I, I, I guess that the scores are not going to be enormous for this movie, or I might get a pleasant surprise, but I don't think they're going to be, are they? So surprisingly, on IMDb, it's got a four point three out of ten, which I think is relatively fair. It's got uh, nothing on its tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's got a 33% audience score. Yeah, that's fair enough. I think there are enough fans of this sort of stuff out there to boost the score a little bit. Is the nothing score the fact that nobody's reviewed it or that just every critic said, piece of shit? 
Well, it says there's one review on there, so <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Who knows? So that is the very last movie in our second Summer of Sharks. I can't believe we've already got to the end of ten of these. It has been a lot of fun. And it's definitely been a lot of fun having Kate on as a guest for three of these. So all I can say is thank you ever so much once again, Kate, for discussing some of the finest shark movies on the planet. And we'd love to have you back. I'm glad it's all gone swimmingly. And I'm sad that it's finished, Darren. <laughs> God almighty. Well, these, yeah, we have they... to end on a pun. These, be done. <laughs> these, these puns won't discourage us from inviting you back. In the words of Vic Morneau's character, you cannot scare us off! <laughs> oh, Darren, Hayley, thank you so much for having me. Genuinely, uh, any excuse to watch a shark-based film and make shark-based puns. And I look forward to Summer of Sharks Part 3. Thank you very much. Thank you. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 75 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy our content and would like to check us out on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. Well, I'm sorry that Summer of Sharks has had to come to an end, but we are still going to be covering movies from now until the end of the year and beyond. Next time, what's the movie we're going to be covering? So I'm quite excited to revisit this film. It's a late 90s movie that has recently been released by Arrow Video. It is the Denise Richards and Nev Campbell star vehicle, Wild Things. I haven't seen this for a while. I do have it as part of the collection. I'm really looking forward to revisiting this one. Should be a lot of fun. Until then, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbeat.